Father God, thank you that we can gather in this place and in this room. Uh, we, like so many other churches, God, are chomping at the bit to get back to whatever normal is. Uh, back to when we can be in a room shoulder to shoulder singing your praises. But until that time, God, uh, we will say, so what? We can gather, we can sing, we can worship, we can learn. Some are at home learning, some are here. We're thankful for everyone, Lord, who's tuning in uh, and paying attention and seeking to grow and to follow you in ways that honor you. Would you teach us now? We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. That sentence was and is perhaps the single most controversial and important sentence that has ever been written. It's a sentence that, in fact, changed the world. And I'm not exaggerating. Now, to understand why that is the case, you have to try and imagine what life was like before those words were written. Imagine that you have never heard that there is a, a single, powerful, personal God, a God who created all things, a God who sustains all things and wants to create a people for himself to live with him for all eternity. You've never heard that before. In fact, all you've heard are creation stories that have come out of Mesopotamia or Assyria or Egypt. Uh, some of you remember maybe from high school or college uh, works like this, the Enuma Elish, for example, which is really just uh, Akkadian, I guess, it's Akkadian. Um, the first words of that ancient piece of literature are went on high, and it goes on to talk about what the gods did went on high, and it's called the Enuma Elish. Again, Akkadian literature from the Assyrian Empire, or maybe you heard this name mentioned, Atrahasis. Atrahasis was another creation story that was very popular in these cultures. And these two stories, uh, they were contemporary, with core, of course, with much of Old Testament history, uh, Israelite history. These creation stories had some basic features in common. They talked about a universe filled with many gods, some more powerful than others. Uh, all, but all of the gods had limited power. No one was all powerful. These gods were self-seeking. Uh, they were morally fallible and, and often morally ambiguous. Uh, they were often petty. They were often jealous of one another. These gods often warred among themselves. And the result was that people lived in fear of what the gods might do to them. And so they did things to keep the gods happy so to speak. They did things like sacrifice, uh, sometimes even offering human sacrifice. And people worshiped objects that they thought represented these gods, objects like the sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, they knew these objects had influence over the affairs of human beings, and that was part of their larger worldview. Now, interestingly, these stories or myths taught a very low view of human beings. Ancient Egyptian literature almost says nothing at all about the creation of humanity, uh, other than the fact that we were made from the tears 
of the sun god, not a happy beginning, you could say. Uh, Mesopotamian literature, literature like the Enuma Elish, says that human beings were made, and I quote, to bear the God's burden so the gods could rest. So the gods were tired of doing the things that they had to do, and they wanted someone else to bear their burden. In that creation story called Atrahasis, uh, it, it tells us that when the lower gods went on strike, remember I said some gods were more powerful than others, and so the more powerful gods made the less powerful gods do things that they didn't want to do. And when those lower gods went on strike, I'm not making this up, uh, they, were, they had been digging irrigation canals, and that got boring and tiring. Well, a more powerful god by the name of Enlil, uh, a very powerful god, commands that all alternative workers be created. Uh, this is, in fact, uh, what he says in the Enuma Elish, or I'm sorry, the Atrahasis. He says, bear the yoke. Humans must bear the yoke, the task of Enlil. In other words, they're going to have to do whatever Enlil tells them to. Let man assume the drudgery of the gods. And there you have it. It's not a very high view of human beings. Um, they are, in fact, slaves or servants of the gods, created to do the work that the gods don't want to do. And as a result, uh, the human struggle, <clears throat> you know, man against man, human being against human being was considered normal. That was the normal estate uh, of things. And it was just this struggle, uh, just like the gods struggled with one another, so man's struggle was with one another. And so therefore, life was hard. Um, it was a battle for oneself. It was not about servanthood or loving your neighbor, you know, as was uh, mentioned in Leviticus 19, Matthew later on in the New Testament, Matthew 22, you know, love God, love your neighbor. It was, it was not about that. It was a fight for survival. It was a fight for dominance. And so violence, uh, the elimination of the weak or the infirm, infanticide, Euthanasia. These were all common practices in Assyria, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, and in these cultures. The central belief of the ancient world was that life was just an endless cycle of people being born and growing old and then dying and being replaced by someone else. And so it goes without any meaning or any real significant purpose at all. History had no great point other than that you were put here to serve the will and the whim of the gods. And you serve those gods chiefly by obeying their representative on earth, which of course is the king. It was good to be king. It was not so good to be anything else, but it was good to be king. But even kings were oftentimes overthrown and overthrown, of course, violently. So if you were just one of the hoi polloi, the many, History was moving in no particular good direction as far as it concerned you. And the result was that life was short and life was cheap and life was brutal. And into this very destructive belief system, the writer of scripture says, in the beginning, God, a transcendent, eternal, all-powerful, personal being, created the heavens and the earth. And the world has never been the same. These words changed the history of the world. 
And they are the opening words, of course, to something we call the Pentateuch. The word Pentateuch is from two words, Penta, five, and Tuch, which means scroll. So the five scrolls, the first five scrolls of the Old Testament or books of the Old Testament. The Jews call it oftentimes just the Torah. In the New Testament, it's oftentimes referred to as the law. And we are going to devote ourselves to studying these first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we'll be doing this for the next few months. Are we excited? Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be good. So many interesting characters, so many things that we learn about God and about ourselves in these fundamental foundational books of what we call the Bible. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. In the time that remains, I want to talk about three things that the writer of Genesis wanted the Israelites to understand some 3,500 years or so ago about creation. And these are things that God wants us to understand today as well. And here's the first thing. The first is the answer to why. Why did God create anything in the first place? Or why does anything at all exist? It's a philosophical question that every worldview uh, needs to wrestle with. Why does something exist rather than nothing? And uh, we read in Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Something that many Old Testament scholars have noted uh, in verse one, we see the work of the father uh, in creation, in making the things that exist. He's the first member, of course, of this thing that we now call the Trinity. Um, and uh, then in verse two, we, we have this other expression, who is hovering over the waters? Who does it say is hovering? Who's a hoverer? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Spirit of God, the second member of the Trinity. And then verse 3 says uh, that God spoke. God speaks. Uh, he creates by speaking, by his word. And of course, many, many years later in the opening words of the Gospel of John, we read these words, in the beginning was the word. There's somebody who's actually identified as the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. There's similar language, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So who was the Word? Well, we've come to understand that the Word is, of course, Jesus. Yeah, God's only Son. And the apostle John goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here's the interesting thing. And we know this from looking back. We might not have picked up on all this just from the verses there in Genesis. But in the first three verses of the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, we have what might be kind of a, a first hint about the nature, the existence of Almighty God, that He is Trinitarian. There's God the Father, and there's the Spirit who hovers, and there's this spoken word. And so we learn something important about the identity of God at the very, very beginning of God's word. 
Now, obviously, by the time Scripture is completed, it becomes crystal clear that even before time, in the beginning, there is an eternal God, and this one God exists, or His nature is that of three persons. And these three persons dwell together and have always dwelt together in, un, in an unceasing state of joy and delight and love for one another. And that, friends, that right there, that news is completely new news. And it's unlike any of the creation stories of Egypt or Mesopotamia or Assyria. The God of the Bible does not create because he's lonely. He doesn't create because he's at war with other gods. He doesn't create because he wants man to do the dirty work that he no longer wants to do. Rather, out of the richness of his magnificent being, out of the fullness of who God is, who is three in one, this God who is community, because he's Trinity, says, let us make man in our image. Let's create a community that gets to reflect the love and the joy and the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness that we in the Trinity experience with one another. It's sort of a, a beginning telos or purpose statement for human beings, if you will. Now, much later, when Jesus is on earth and he's praying to his heavenly father on one occasion, he prays this prayer. He's praying for the church. He's praying for his people. He's praying for this community that he's making. He says, I pray for them that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for and about this community that he is making. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, he prays that we would be one. And that our oneness or that our community would evidence that Jesus was sent from the Father. So this community of God's people, Jesus wants it to be so good and so rich and so beautiful that fallen people would look at it and wonder what's behind that kind of community. Who creates that kind of community? Where does that come from? It's interesting here in Genesis, uh, what I want us to see is that God creates human beings and then invites them to have a relationship with him. So question, why do we exist? What is our purpose? Well, we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, says the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, we exist to have community with God forever. Understand, this is such a different worldview than any other worldview that has ever existed. Dallas Willard, a writer that I appreciate, passed away a few years ago, Christian philosopher and writer, said this. He said, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself, God himself included as the primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. I love that quote. That's, a, I think, a great summary of what God is up to in creation, in particular in creating human beings. God is making an inclusive community of loving persons with himself as the primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's what God is up to. That's why you and I exist. 
Our universe is not a, a random chance occurrence, a jumble of atoms or molecules or quarks or forces held together and sustained by impersonal laws of physics. Our universe exists because out of the richness of the triune God's being and fellowship, God says, let us extend this community. Let's make a people for ourselves. And friends, there's no other understanding of reality that has that kind of picture of why human beings exist. This idea is unique to the teachings of the Bible. So you want to know why black lives matter? Do uh, You want to know why your life matters? Well, this is the answer. This is actually the only answer uh, with any substance to it. Uh, God made you to have fellowship with himself. And that's why regardless your color of skin, your ethnicity, your background, doesn't matter. God made you to have fellowship with him. That's why you are here. Friends, this is a profoundly important, fundamental, foundational idea. And if you don't understand this, if this truth isn't the foundation of your worldview, well, then your life is confused at best. Your life will seem pointless. Your life will be self-centered. It will be about you. Your life will be unsatisfying and your life will be frustrating. You will keep wondering why, even though you achieve your goals, perhaps, you know, you, you manage to get through school and do well and you manage to get married and you succeed at work and you have children and you, you're getting stuff, you're getting money. All of these things feel great for a bit, but they don't deeply satisfy. And here is why you haven't understood that all of those things, as good as they might be for the moment, they're simply gifts given to you by God, but they are not who or what you were made for. You were made for God. And until you understand that, nothing else will really make much sense. It just won't. It can't. That's the first big announcement that comes screaming off the pages of the Pentateuch. Fundamentally important. Let me mention a second, a second observation about the doctrine of creation. God wanted his community to have this wonderful place to live, a place to, to thrive, a place of beauty and, and variety and, and abundance. And this is why God made the universe, all the other stuff in addition to human beings. He made a place where this community of human beings in fellowship with God could just flourish and achieve and learn and grow and honor him. Now, Genesis makes one thing also very clear, and that is the fact that uh, <laughs> we human beings, uh, we are not God. That becomes very, very apparent in these early verses uh, of the book of Genesis. Uh, and understand, this was... This is not something that was clear to, to ever. There's a, there's a big, big difference, in other words, between the creator and the things that are created. 
And this was not clear to those worldviews that were present at that time. And, and I might even add, it's not clear to worldviews that people embrace today, that there's this infinite gap between creator and the created. Human beings had this problem. And in the ancient days, Paul says in Romans 1, that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so things like the moon or things like the sun were worshiped as deities, created things. People thought that the moon and the sun had existed forever and that perhaps they represented uh, real gods. And so they would pray to the moon, they would pray to the sun, they would pray to the stars and they would offer sacrifices to them. The writer of Genesis wants to make it clear that God and nature or creation are not the same thing. They are not. Now, here's how he makes that point. It's very interesting. Look at verses three through five. It says, in the first day, uh, this is the very first day, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning and there was the first day. So it's, it's interesting. On the first day, there's evening and there's morning. But here's the question. On what day was the sun created? Well, let's jump down a little bit. Look at verses 14 to 19. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So when was the sun created? I just gave you the answer, the fourth day. There you go. <laughs> Come on, students. Yeah. The fourth day. Sometimes people read through Genesis and understandably they say, well, wait a minute. There was evening, there was morning on that first day, but there's no sun until the fourth day. What's with this? This doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, to be clear, the writer of Genesis is not confused scientifically, okay? Uh, the writer of Genesis is simply making a very big and very important point. He's making it clear that the sun and the moon and the stars are part of creation. They are not God. He makes the point that they had a real and definite beginning, the fourth day. They're not eternal. And I don't know if you noticed, but in the text, it never uses uh, the names sun or moon. It just calls them the two great lights, the greater light and the lesser light. There's a reason for that because sun and moon were actually names of deities in these ancient Near Eastern cultures. And so the writer of Genesis wants everybody who reads this book to be real clear that the sun and the moon are not divine. They are actually created by the divine one, God himself. Their functions are assigned to them by an all-powerful God who is fully capable of generating light without any help from them. That's what the writer of Genesis is telling us. And Genesis is shouting the message, don't worship created stuff, worship the creator. 
Now, of course, only primitive people have that problem, worshiping created stuff. I mean, that would be stupid, right? <laughs> Incredibly stupid would that be. I mean, who would ever do that? So we don't really need that reminder. But primitive people did. Don't worship created stuff. Don't give your life to things that won't last and cannot satisfy the void in your own spirit or human heart. The purpose of creation is to help us see how truly good our good God is. He gives us this place in which to live, use skills and abilities that we have to impact it. He's such a good, good God. The apostle Paul says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are, we are without excuse. You know, you look at the world, Paul is saying, and you get a message very clearly. And although it doesn't give us all the information we need, it doesn't perfectly reveal God to us or fully reveal God to us. However, what it does tell us is there is some power out there that is so great, it can create all of this stuff, including us. And that power, Paul says, also, the creation out there tells us that that power is God, divine, God's divine nature. So when you look at stuff, anything. Uh, the other day I was riding my bike and I came down uh, through a trail and a little bobcat, it was, a, it was young, it wasn't fully grown, a little bobcat runs across the trail. How cool is that? That was very cool. Uh, I've been up in Yellowstone Park and saw a herd of buffalo running across the road. Thankfully they were well away from my car, but that was cool. You know, how many people, that is so cool. Eagles flying, sun rising, sun setting. Oceans beating the shores. Why do sights like that and so many others that you could name, why do they move us so deeply? They move artists to write poetry or books about them. Uh, they move artists to write uh, or, or paint uh, beautiful paintings or take beautiful photographs. Why? Why are we moved by these things? What I would suggest they they move us because they reflect something truly majestic, truly powerful, truly great. They tell us a truth about God, his power and his divine nature. And they tell us that very clearly, Paul says. There are these uh, phrases in Genesis that repeat over and over, in fact, seven times in the first uh, chapter of Genesis. Uh, and God said, let there be, and then there's a whole list of things, right? Let there be light, let there be the heavens or the sky, let there be dry land, let there be plants, let there be animals, let there be man, and it was so. That's the formula. Friends, that's an expression of the power of this divine one, the power of God. He just speaks. And it is so. He creates out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. One moment, there's just nothing there. And then God speaks and there's stuff everywhere. Now, other ancient creation stories talk about pagan gods 
working with chaos and with matter, which has always existed. And the gods are struggling among themselves for control. They're trying to bring order out of chaos. And, and then there's Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, who simply speaks and it is so. This is so different than any other creation story. Another theme that keeps recurring in the Bible's creation account is that when God speaks and when God creates, he then surveys it and we read that God saw that it was good. Seven times, seven times in chapter one. And you might wanna circle that little word good every time you see it because the goodness of the creation is the reminder of the goodness of the creator. And God takes endless delight in the things that he makes. This too is different than any other story about the creation. Genesis in verse 21, 121 says, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. These creatures he made, they were good. And the very next verse, it says, and God blessed them. God makes creatures and he blessed them. And it tells us how he says, he, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. Make a lot more of yourselves. God blesses them. Imagine what that was like. That's God delighting in the things that he made and the things he created. Uh, anybody here have a pet, ever had a pet? Okay, for most of us, um, you know, that's a big deal having a pet. It's funny what human beings do with animals that we adopt and make our own and make our pets. We get really silly with them. We give them sometimes special places to sleep and we give them little pet names and we talk like we're talking to a baby to our pets and we give them special pet toys and special pet treats. And when they get sick, we take them to a special pet doctor. It costs thousands of dollars. Why do we do this? Well, we do love our pets. We do, most of us, right? <laughs> I, I think there's a little bit of that whole imaging of God thing going on there. There just might be. We delight in things that God has made too, and we delight in getting to take care of them and calling them our own and making them a member of the family, so to speak. There's, there's a little bit of God-likeness in us as we reflect back God's glory to him. God made these creatures. God delights in these creatures. God blessed these creatures. And probably God is happy with us when we care for creatures the way he would care for them. We probably delight him when he sees us doing that. Now, it's interesting, uh, just kind of an aside here, it, the Hebrews, the Israelites, when they would talk about the things that God created, they never used the word nature. You know, you hear the word mother nature a lot. Mother nature did this or mother nature. The Hebrews didn't have that concept. They talked about creation. They didn't have a word for mother nature or nature because they understood that the world, all of it, it does not exist on its own naturally. Um, it is the creation of God, the universe, and every jot and detail of it is the creation of God. He made it. He sustains it. He loves it. He delights in it. And they saw God's fingerprints all over it. 
You'll notice when you read the Psalms that for the psalmist, uh, there were two great places of worship. One of them was, of course, the tabernacle, which then later was the temple, where people would gather for formal worship to give God praise and honor and glory. That's one of the places the psalmist identifies as giving uh, where God's people were to give him glory and, and honor. The, the other, however, is creation. It's kind of what Paul was referring to in Romans 1. In creation, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So, friends, you know, we, we, we absolutely definitely need to be students of the scriptures. We talked a little bit about this last week. The importance of the discipline of reading the Bible. It's called special revelation. It, it gives us the redemptive plan of God. What is God up to in, his, in sending his son to earth is vitally important. It tells us more deeply and more thoroughly who God is and what God is up to and what God is like and who we are. Special revelation, absolutely essential. But we also do need to read and observe general revelation. The creation. Because it can inspire us and Put us, you know, in awe of who God is. It reminds us everywhere you look, everything you see, it reminds us of the genius of God, the power of God, his divine nature and his goodness toward us in giving us these things. That's, uh, that's a gift. That's a gift from God who delights in his creation he delights in giving us responsibility in it. A third observation that's very important here in Genesis. The writer wants us to understand that the climax of creation is the creation of human beings. Uh, the writer wants us to um, notice the, the importance so much that he actually gives us two accounts in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2, the creation of human beings is told twice. And in these accounts, we are told two critical things about people. Uh, the first is, of course, that we are very humble, very finite, very limited, very fragile creatures. In other words, we are not gods. As I said before, we are not gods. And Genesis is real clear about this. Notice that everything God creates in chapter one, he just speaks into existence. God says, let there be, and there it was, but not with human beings. In Genesis chapter two, it tells us in verse seven that God forms all the animals and birds, including man, and he does so out of the dust of the earth. That's significant. Now, the dominant alternative worldview to the Bible in that day said that people are nothing. They have no special dignity or very special purpose. They are just servants or slaves to the gods. And interestingly, even today, the prevailing worldview tells us that people are still nothing very significant. Not really. We're just, you know, relatives of the apes, but we have an advantage. We have opposable thumbs and we're more clever, but we, like them, are just compositions of chemicals. But that is not what Genesis tells us, understand. Genesis opposes the popular worldview, both then and now. 
Genesis says we are not gods. We're not meant to define ourselves. We're not meant to discover our own purpose. We are not gods because we have come from the dust. We are created like other creatures. However, we are at the pinnacle of God's creating activity. Genesis 1:27, the very famous verse says that we are made, of course, in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The writer of Genesis does not spell out precisely what that is or what that means, but you know, theologians have for centuries been working on that. And it involves things like us being moral agents, understanding that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, that seems uh, to be embedded in us. It's part of our DNA to have a sense of right and wrong, although the fall, and we'll say a lot more about this uh, next Sunday, has deeply scarred that. We are creatures who think. We are creatures who make choices and decisions. We have the capacity for community. We have the capacity for creativity. We are different than other animals. We love beauty. We love poetry. We love to compose music or, or books or invent and create. And we are like God in these kinds of thoughts and activities. We also enjoy a connection to God that none of the other creatures have. And our connection allows us to glorify him and to honor him in our thoughts and in our actions. And that makes human beings unique. God does this wonderful thing we note uh, in here in the early chapters of Genesis. He does this uh, for human beings, uh, not the other animals. He actually gives us purposeful work to do. That's very significant. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it, guard it. We're going to talk a lot more about that in weeks to come. But it's a curious thing when you stop and think about it. Essentially, God left creation with stuff still to be done. More could be done. It was unfinished in a sense. Not the making of it, but the organizing of it, the using of it. And so, now God didn't have to do that. So why did he? Well, I think in part it's because he made human beings to be like himself. And being made so, we want to contribute. We want to add value. We want to create and invent and make a difference and work purposefully. That's what God is always doing. And God invites us to do that, to work under him, to be vice regents with him, to rule and to have dominion over other created things. And by doing this, God gives us amazing dignity, incredible opportunity. In fact, what he's really doing, and again, we'll unfold this a whole lot more. He's really making all of us kings and priests. Remember earlier I said, it's good to be king. Well, if you weren't king, it wasn't so good. Not in those ancient cultures. I mean, the king had it all. And what the king wanted, the king got. And if you weren't the king, well, tough, you know. But what God does is God makes all of us kings and priests, ruling and serving under him. That is hugely significant. So our work, you see, is very important. It matters. Now, Again, next week, we're going to see just how royally we mess that up. Um, But God gave us things to do that really do 
matter. We're even going to discover eventually, too, that he gives us special abilities and skills. Uh, we call them spiritual gifts to use in the doing of that work. And in all of this, we glorify him. We honor him. And, and we then feel good about doing what we're doing. It's all just a huge, wonderful gift given to us by our God. Now, God didn't just make human beings to work. Uh, we do other things. Genesis 2.18, the writer has been setting this one up all along. Uh, there's this refrain that keeps repeating, and God saw that it was good. But then all of a sudden in verse 18, it says it was not good. God sees something that's not good. He says in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Adam needs a companion, someone with whom to build community. And so there's a parade of animals brought before Adam to see if any of them might be Adam's type. And in verse uh, 19, it says, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And, and apparently, obviously, Adam was a great namer. He was using skills and abilities that God had put into him. I don't think this was just a quick, thoughtless process for Adam to give names to the animals. No, in fact, this naming had to do with giving them a name that suited them, that was right for them. And Adam was already working and already glorifying God. That's what's going on there. But we read in verse 20, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Adam looks at the animals and doesn't discover any animal there that he's necessarily attracted to. And then God creates a woman and Adam decides she is his type. Yeah. And his response is poetry, sheer poetry. It actually is Hebrew poetry. Uh, there's kind of a little playfulness in the text. You get this even in the English. Uh, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman or Isha in Hebrew for she was taken out of man or ish, ish, isha, man, woman. So now Adam has a suitable helper and you've heard, I'm sure many teach on this. The Hebrew word here does not mean gopher. It doesn't mean junior assistant. It uh, doesn't mean secretary or something like that. In fact, the word helper is a ezir, which is a word that occurs uh, pretty frequently in the Old Testament and it almost always refers to God, God himself. Uh, part of the idea behind Eve being Adam's helper is that the, his fundamental task of creating community, a whole community that lives and works to love and to honor God, uh, was a task he couldn't do alone. Of course, he needed a helper, a suitable helper. He needed Eve. We read in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. It's the institution of marriage, which God creates in these early chapters of Genesis. And here too, we see kind of a sort of an interesting signature of God in all of this. You see, God is Trinity, right? One plus one plus one equals one. <laughs> interesting math. And then God creates human beings in his image, male and female, he creates them. And he says, one plus one will make them one as well. Another way in which in relationship and community, we honor God and image God. God creates the institution of marriage, a husband and a wife. It's the pinnacle of human community. It's the ultimate uh, expression of intimacy in the context of promise and covenant and marriage. So in this community, there is oneness. 
And this oneness will be sheer delight. The rabbis identified 613 commands in the Torah. Do you know what the very first one is? Be fruitful and multiply. And Adam prayed about it and said, okay. The next, uh, next Sunday, we're going to read about the, how the man and the woman fell into sin and destroyed community both with God and with each other. And we'll see how God responds to that. That too is rather remarkable. Uh, we'll see how God refused to let man's sin destroy what his plan and purpose was for community. And so he enters into community with fallen human beings in the context of covenant promises. And we'll see the covenant of redemption and grace born. But this morning, friends, I, I just want us to see that Genesis does for us today exactly what it did for people when it was first written. It challenges prevailing world views to the core. It is meant to define us. You see, we are creatures made in the image of God. And this is meant to tell us why we are here. We are here to have community with Almighty God, to worship Him, to serve Him, to love Him, and to do this together with other human beings. And when we get that message, we're going to see this theme throughout the Pentateuch, we experience and we live in the blessing of God. There's no better place to be. But when we do not when we try to define ourselves and make up our own rules, our own purpose, our own identity, our own creation story, well, quite frankly, we are a mess when we do that. And so is the community that we create. And so Genesis forces us to ask, you know, what is my world view? What is my life built upon? What are the foundation stones on which I stand? Why am I on this planet? And Genesis challenges us to believe that God put us here and God wants my life, every aspect of it, all of it, school, work, family, recreation, church, uh, society, you name it, all of it to be done in community with him for his glory. And so if I make anything, anything, making money, being healthy, being smart, being beautiful, being liked, being powerful. If I make anything more important than loving and serving and obeying God, well, then I'm not being who I'm meant and made to be. This is profoundly significant. This flies in the face of so much thinking that we find ourselves wrestling with today in our own society and culture. This challenges how we tend to think in our brokenness, our sinfulness, our fallenness about ourselves and about each other. You see, the book of beginnings challenges every culture, every people, every tribe, every nation, every world view. It always has. And it always will. It tells us that we were made by Almighty God 
before Almighty God. And that therefore <laughs> we matter and what we do matters. It has significance. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words at the very beginning of your word. We thank you for the glimpse that it gives us of who you are, your nature, your power, your divinity, even the fact, Father, that while you are one God, you are three persons. We thank you for what this says about human beings and for how this gives dignity and importance to all the things that you made and created. We thank you, God, that we understand in these words why you put us here. Would you help us as your followers and disciples more and more to move into the truth that you made us and you love us and you have us here for a purpose. And may that knowledge give us the sense of satisfaction and security of knowing that we matter because we matter to you. Father God, continue to teach us as we plow our way through the Pentateuch together. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive the truth that, that we need to hear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.